I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. It's been almost 3,000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Way back in April of 2013. It's not uh, so way episode, back. It's not so way back, <laughs> but when you consider that you and I came onto the show in March of 2013, it feels like forever. It does. Uh, we did an episode on Australia's rabbit-proof fence. So essentially, the English had introduced rabbits to Australia and that rabbits had done what they do. And this led to the state barrier fence of Western Australia, which was more than a thousand miles long and was this desperate attempt to keep rabbits from completely destroying any available agricultural land. Uh, and this fence still exists in some places today. It also led to a listener request from Christopher to talk about India's Great Hedge, which was another British effort to build a massive fence. But... In this case, while its intent was not to keep people from moving from one place to another, it definitely had that effect. Its actual purpose was about collecting taxes. So first we're going to talk about salt, which may sound weird if you don't know what we're talking about today, but I promise it comes around, so stick with us. Uh, as much as modern medical science 
likes to tell you that salt is bad for you. Too much is, but salt is necessary to human survival. Your body actually needs it to function, and it is a critical part of a lot of food preservation methods. And even though it's not just about making things taste better, uh, I know I'm a big fan of it, it makes things taste better. Yep. In India, specifically, salt is an especially critical dietary staple. The climate in a lot of India is very hot, and that means that people routinely need to replenish the salt in their bodies as they sweat it out of their bodies. This hot climate also makes India home to a number of diseases that cause diarrhea, and that also means that people need more salt. They have to replenish the salt in their body as they rehydrate after having had diarrhea. So everyone needs salt to survive, and this is especially true in India. For most of India's recorded history, salt has been both abundant and subject to taxation. People have collected salt from the ocean, salt lakes, and the soil. And methods of taxing the collected salt have varied from place to place and from ruler to ruler throughout India's history. Salt taxation has taken the form of a tax on the sale of salt, a permitting fee for gathering your own salt, and a variety of other methods. This idea of taxing salt continued to be present after the British East India Company's arrival in India. The company's first ships arrived in India in 1608, and over the next two centuries, the company annexed more and more Indian territory and then ruled it on Britain's behalf. During all of this time, it continued to collect taxes on salt. In 1857, the Indian army rebelled against British troops, which could be a whole different episode. Afterward, Britain began ruling India directly rather than going through the East India Company, and when it did, it also maintained salt taxes. Because the salt was one of the two primary sources of revenue for the British in India, the other was a tax on land, uh, the British government paid close attention to who was getting salt and from where. Parts of India that lay near the ocean, like Madras and Bombay, could get salt from seawater. Farther inland, people could get salt from washing the soil, although this salt wasn't very pure or very good quality for that matter. In the northwest India lay several princely states that were not completely under British control. Nearby parts of India could trade with them for salt. But the British ideal, since salt was such an important part of its revenue, was for all of India to get all of its salt from Britain or from salt that was produced in India that uh, in productions that were actually controlled by the British. And then that way, all of the salt in India would be subject to British tax. Consequently, salt, which everyone truly needed, was expensive under British rule. Personal salt collection was outlawed, and people weren't always able to get as much as they needed through the official channels. Sometimes this was because the government underestimated the allotment of salt each family should be entitled to. Sometimes it was because the government-controlled supply ran out. Sometimes it was because the tax just made this necessary nutrient too expensive and costly for people to be able to afford. Even within British documents, opinions really varied in terms of how widespread these problems were and how serious There were British reports saying that the number of salt shortages was near disastrous. And then there were others saying that it was a challenge, but not insurmountable. Regardless of how the British felt about it, the Indian population definitely objected to the salt tax. For many, the tax made salt too expensive to afford, as we mentioned just a moment ago. 
The tax itself was also a reminder of British colonial rule. And the various methods for enforcement of the tax and deterrence of smuggling were embarrassing, and they landed people in jail. Consequently, protest of salt taxation was a critical part of Indian of the Indian independence movement and of Gandhi's work there. And people were willing to, or forced to, get their salt from illegal means. There's a whole episode on uh, Gandhi's salt march from way, 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 way back in, I think, the Candace and Jane era of the podcast, if you are interested in that. And before we talk a little more specifically about how Britain tried to stop uh, salt smuggling during its colonial rule of India, let's take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. That sounds grand. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. 
I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So to return to the ways that Britain tried to stop salt smuggling, because the salt tax was such a huge source of revenue for the British, the government really had a vested interest in stopping people from smuggling salt. And for the most part, the smuggling was from the princely states in the Northwest, which were outside of British control, into the rest of India. In 1803, a law was passed to allow the establishment of a customs house in every district in the Bengal Presidency, which was one of Britain's major provinces in India. The customs houses had two jobs to do, to stop smugglers and to collect taxes on imports and exports. And it wasn't just salt. There were also taxes and duties on things like sugar and tobacco. Britain built customs barriers on all of the Bengal presidency's major roads, uh, primarily putting them near salt mines and near any place where salt might be illegally manufactured. And this included places where the soil was very salty and places that had easier access to the sea. Unsurprisingly, the department in charge of all this monitoring quickly became quite corrupt. For the most part, the people in charge of the outposts were British and the rest of the workers were Indian. All of them were rewarded with 35% of the value of any salt they confiscated. While this may have been intended to encourage thoroughness, in reality, the lowest-ranking customs officers didn't actually make enough to live off of just from their wages. So abusing the 35% reward plan encouraged people to dishonesty. There was also an ingrained culture of bribery and extortion in this department. And some of the most nefarious uh, customs workers did some pretty deliberate things to try to get that 35% bonus pretty often. Things like throwing salt into people's houses and then accusing them of having stolen it and then confiscating all of the salt that they did have, as well as any vessels that they could have been using to smuggle salt, but generally were just using to do things like store their food. This whole system of customs houses gave the British many places from which to seek out smugglers and collect taxes. But since patrolling officers couldn't be everywhere at once, smuggling was still rampant. And so, in 1823, George Saunders, the customs commissioner, proposed another line of customs outposts, this time along the Yamuna River. And it was these outposts that wound up forming the backbone of what would become the Great Customs Line. 
So the British customs line took on a lot of different forms over the years. The British would move branches of it, start new ones, abandon parts of it, and otherwise fiddle with it for around 50 years or so. Generally speaking, it separated the Bengal presidency from the princely states and their non-British controlled salt stockpiles by following the Ganges and Yamuna rivers, then then going cross-country towards Delhi. In addition, the salt tax itself was higher in some parts of British territory and lower in others. And so the customs line had additional guards and customs houses around the places with the lower tax to try to keep people from smuggling salt out of the low tax areas and into the higher tax areas. There was also an independent princely state within the customs line's borders for many years, and so that had its own helping of customs outposts and surveillance until Britain uh, eventually annexed it as well. Because Britain was continually annexing new territory, it kept building new customs houses. A man named G.H. Smith became Britain's Commissioner of Customs in India in 1834. He gradually took over the whole of the customs line and started consolidating all of its various spurs and duplications that had come about from these annexations into one unified line. He also focused on its mission a little bit, dropping some of the less lucrative levies on things like shawls and tobacco and instead really going after salt. It was also during Smith's time as commissioner that the customs line grew into an actual physical barrier. Uh, to start with, there were basically customs posts every mile, and they were connected by a raised path. Officers were stationed at every post, and there were men, uh, in addition to that, every quarter of a mile. And these men patrolled their section of the line and tried to apprehend any smugglers who crossed it. When it was time to change shifts, guards had to sweep their section of the path with bamboo or grass so that the next guard could be responsible for any footprints that crossed it on their shift. Somewhere around 1840, the British started using vegetation as a barrier, and that practice was becoming more widespread by the 1850s. In Smith's time as Commissioner of Customs, which lasted for 20 years, the customs line budget swelled to 790,000 rupees a year, and its staff grew to 6,600 people. The next Commissioner of Customs was Alan Octavian Hume, According to his reports, by 1868, there was a stretch of impenetrable hedge along the customs line that was about 180 miles long. And maintaining this barrier took a huge amount of time and labor. Thanks to storms, fires, termites, normal decay, and vandalism, about half the vegetation had to be replaced every single year. Through the late 1860s and until the end of his tenure in 1870, Commissioner Hume's annual reports detailed the line's growth as the hedge extended into this hundreds of miles long. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from 
the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Barrier that was at least 10 feet tall and 2 feet thick. Soon, the British government created an entire inland customs department. This department was enormous in terms of both money and power. Between 1869 and 1870, the cost to run the customs line was about 1.6 million rupees. 
But in the same time, the customs line collected 12.5 million rupees in tax just on salt. It continued to collect taxes on other necessities, such as sugar as well. So it cost some money to maintain, but they were making a whole lot more money in the taxes they were collecting from it. Commissioner G.H.M. Batten took over as commissioner in 1870, and he focused mainly on making the existing line completely impassable and also lengthening it. Here is a description in the words of Sir John and Lieutenant General Richard Strakey of what the customs line and its hedge were like at its peak from the Finances and Public Works of India from 1869 to 1881, parentheses 1882. So this is the quote. A customs line was established which stretched across the whole of India, which in 1869 extended from the Indus to the Mahanadi in Madras, a distance of 2,300 miles, and it was guarded by nearly 12,000 men and petty officers. The fine, the Commissioner of Inland Customs wrote in his report for 1869-1870, is divided into 110 beats, each presided over by a patrol and watched from 1,727 guard posts. A very perfect system of patrolling exists, and, except in some wild portions of the central provinces, where tigers bar the way alike to smuggler and customs officer after dark, goes on with unabated vigilance night and day. The workers who patrolled this line were exclusively men, and they had to live along the line in dwellings that they themselves were responsible for building, and they also had to leave their families behind. The most ideal parts of the hedge were 10 to 14 feet high, 6 to 12 feet thick, impenetrable live vegetation, including acacia, prickly pear, Indian plum, and a thorny creeper growing through it. At its longest, it was 2,504 miles long. The last commissioner to oversee the customs line was W.S. Halsey. He reported that for 1877 and 1878, the hedge contained... 411.5 miles of perfect and good green hedge, 298 miles of combined green and dry hedge, 471 miles of dry hedge, 6 miles of stone wall, and 333 miles that were, quote, wanting or insufficient for a total of 1,521 miles at that time. Uh, So this was as it was sort of waning at the very end of its time in use. The same report also mentions that additional work on the line was ending since it was about to be abandoned. So before we jump into the the next segment, which is kind of going to talk about the impact of this hedge line, do you want to have a word from a sponsor? Let's do. So to get back to the impact of this customs line, the Strakeys, whose report on finances and public works we read from earlier, were pretty upfront in their opinions about the impact of this hedge. They wrote, quote, it may be easily imagined what great and inevitable obstruction to trade, what gross abuses and oppression, what annoyance and harassment to individuals took place. The interference was not combined to the traffic passing into British territory for, owing to the levy of an export duty on all sugar passing from British British territory into Rajputana, which had been retained after all other similar inland duties were removed, and to which I shall again refer, these same obstructions were offered to the traffic passing in the other direction. They also noted that it was impossible to operate without it, given that the salt tax was levied differently in different provinces. 
So from their point of view, it was an evil, but a necessary one. Yeah, I didn't find in their report uh, what their thoughts really were on the tax itself. But they were sort of like, yeah, as long as this is how the tax is working, we have to do something. People who lived really close to the customs line were allowed to take two pounds of salt across it without paying taxes. But they still had to be searched, which, in addition to just being an indignity, opened up the possibility for extortion and bribery if they were falsely accused of smuggling something. People who tried to smuggle salt across the line and were caught were fined or imprisoned. In 1868 alone, 924 smugglers were fined and 1,416 were imprisoned. The fine for smuggling was also more than double the average agricultural wage, so it was a huge deal. People tried a lot of different ways to try to smuggle salt uh, over the line. One was to float salt down the river on an unmanned barge so that it would be collected uh, farther down the river away from the customs hedge. People would also, like, plant a pole into the ground and then shinny up it and sort of jump over from the top in the hope of not getting caught on all the thorns. Um, that would leave the evidence of the post behind them on the other side so someone would know that someone had gotten across. Um, people would also disguise salt in dried fruit or other food items. But in spite of all these justifications that the British gave for needing the line and for all the expense of running it and all the headaches and delays that it added on to basic trade and commerce operations in India, the reality was that it was still really expensive. So right about the same time as Britain completed this giant barrier that basically walled off the princely states of Rajasthan from the Bengal presidency, it put its eye to different to a different way to maintain its tax on salt a total monopoly on salt production in all of India, including the princely states that were out of its control. First, it bribed the rulers of Jaipur and Jodhpur for the control of the Sambar Salt Lake. And this was a major supplier of salt, both legal and illegal, to British India from outside of the customs line. The British lease on the Sambar Salt Works went into effect on May 1st, 1871. A.O. Hume, who we previously talked about during this, uh, during his term as customs commissioner, negotiated with the princely states of Rajasthan in 1878, basically securing British rights to smaller sources of salt around the princely states. The British paid the leaders of the princely states almost 2.3 million rupees for control of nearly all of the remaining salt production meaning that even though the princely states were not British territory, their residents still had to pay the British salt tax. The customs line and its accompanying hedge were abandoned on April 1st, 1879. At this point, the British had gained near total control of all salt production in all of India, including both the territory it had annexed and the princely states, which were not really under its jurisdiction Following a famine that had started three years before, Britain had also kind of rebalanced the taxation levels so that they were more consistent from one place to another. The actual goal of this was to reduce taxes in the areas that were hardest hit by the famine and increased in other areas to make up for the difference. So it just had the overall side effect of meaning that the tax was mostly the same everywhere and it was no longer financially worthwhile to have a big uh, smuggling operation from a low tax area because the tax just wasn't that much lower anymore. 
So the people of India were relieved of a major trade obstacle and the searches, seizures, extortion, etc. that came with it of the customs line. But they were still faced with paying an often unaffordable amount for a basic dietary staple that they literally had to have to survive, whether they were actual subjects of British rule or not. So protesting the salt tax was a huge part of the Indian independence movement. The tax was repealed in 1946, and India gained its independence from Britain in 1947. The independence movement and the all the events that went along with it could definitely be entire other podcasts. And as we said earlier, there is one about the Salt March back in the archive. Roy Moxham, who wrote The Great Hedge of India, The Search for the Living Barrier That Divided a People, which was one of the main sources for this episode, looked for remaining evidence of the hedge during several trips to India during the 1990s. This actually started after he stumbled over a reference to it in a used book that he'd purchased on a whim. Even after finding old maps showing the customs line, he still had trouble finding any actual remnants of it on his subsequent visits to India. Yeah, the, the book itself is part history of India, history of this hedge, history of the salt tax, and part travel log of his efforts to find an actual remnant of it. I mean, since it was made of vegetation, once it was not maintained anymore, it mostly disappeared. It was, you know, the dry parts eaten or destroyed or burned up and the living parts kind of growing into something that wasn't an orderly hedge anymore. Um, his search probably would have been a lot easier today. GPS uh, receivers weren't ubiquitous when he was doing this. You know, you just, you just didn't have one in your smartphone that you carried around with you. So he had to buy one. It cost 125 pounds at the time. Um, the printers and scanners and digital cameras that could have helped him wrangle all these old maps also were not nearly as ubiquitous as they are today. So he made several trips to India, not not all of them specifically look for the hedge, but it took him a lot of tries and a lot of poking through some more remote areas uh, before he did find what he felt like was uh, a last remaining vegetation part of the hedge. It's a really interesting book. Um, and we have talked almost none about his travels into India and all of his efforts to do that part because uh, it, it's not so much about the history part. But if you're interested in the story... That's all through there. Do you also have some listener mail for us now that we are thinking about salt and lunch? I do. <laughs> I I feel guilty that the whole time we talk about salt, I think about food. That's okay. <laughs> uh, this is actually from our Facebook inbox, and it's from Anna. Anna says, as a North American archaeologist, I was very excited to see the episode on Poverty Point. Many Americans have an unfortunate lack of knowledge about Native American history, which contributes to the numerous misconceptions and stereotypes about the many varied groups that lived or still live in North America. I've had students ask if pre-contact Native Americans had weapons, and many even believe that Native Americans are extinct. I'd love to hear more about the stories of pre- or post-contact Native groups. I'm one of those rare people who does not care so much for the biographical episode, so thank you for including episodes about events or cultural groups as well. Sadly, I never had the opportunity to dig either at Poverty Point or Cahokia, but I did excavate at the Buried Gardens of Campsville site, which is contemporaneous with Cahokia and situated about 70 miles north of the city, well within Cahokia's extensive trading network. I thought you might enjoy my favorite story about this trading network. 
Archaeologists at Cahokia have actually found shark teeth traded all the way from the Gulf Coast. That's pretty cool. But what fascinates me is that replica shark teeth made out of stone have also been recovered. The wealthy elite could afford the real teeth, but the next sociological stratum, in order to appear wealthy or fit in with the trend of having these teeth as adornment or display, had to make do with a stone knockoff. Just goes to show that people are pretty much the same everywhere, even thousands of years ago. I love you for the show. Thanks for all you do. Anna, P.S., thank you for using the term projectile point instead of arrowhead. Thank you, Anna, for writing <laughs> that letter. I love the part about the shark teeth. I did, too. I, I like that we're doing designer imposters, even, <laughs> yeah. even historically. Well, and I also like how it shows a, a difference culturally between Cahokia and Poverty Point, because at Poverty Point, there's not a lot of evidence of different social strata. Um but the shark teeth points to evidence of there being sort of higher and lower classes in Cahokia, which is really interesting. If you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, you can. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store where you can buy shirts and phone cases and all kinds of other stuff, and that is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, that is howstuffworks.com, and put the word SALT MARCH in the search bar. You will find Why Did Gandhi March 240 Miles for Salt? And you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, to find show notes and an archive of every episode and lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned.
Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.